little series called Exposing the Pharisees. And uh, last week, just a way of review, remember we looked at the explanation of the crowd. The breakdown of chapter 23 is basically Jesus gives an explanation to his disciples and the crowd gathered there in the temple in verses 1 to 12. And then he gives a denunciation to the Pharisees directly from verses 13 to about verse 36. And then he actually gives a lament over Jerusalem from 37 to 39. So hopefully we'll finish up what we can today. But remember last week when we looked at the explanation to the crowd, those first 12 verses were so key uh, to our understanding. And it showed that the Pharisees, first of all, they had a false concept of righteousness. And we saw that in verses 2 and 3. He told them, uh, practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. And uh, the Pharisees had a knack for declaring themselves righteous and just based on what was on the outside. And they also had a false concept of ministry, and we saw that in verse 4. It says, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to even move with one finger. And the contrast there between the broad shoulders, uh, the strong broad shoulders and a, a single finger shows you their inability and the false concept that they had to, to help anyone. In other words, they basically wanted to keep people down uh, through their laws and their religion and, and the burdens that they placed on them. And Jesus confronted uh, the disciples and the crowds about that and said, don't listen to these guys. And then the third thing was in verses 5 to 12, they had a false concept of greatness. And uh, they basically, it says there, they love the place of honor, the best seats, and uh, love to be called by certain names. And Jesus went on and said, don't, don't refer to them as these things spiritually. And then he closes off in verse 11, and he simply says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, Let's read from verses 13 down through the end of the chapter, and then we'll go through it. Verse 13 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow, your, allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by that oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift on the altar... The gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Verse 20. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. 
And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of, of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bacariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 1 Peter says, If we exalt ourselves God will humble us but if we humble ourselves God will exalt us remember where we find ourselves in our text this is Wednesday of the week of passion Friday Christ will be crucified and last week we looked at how he confronted the disciples in the crowd and told them about the religiosity of the Pharisees and said don't follow them they're false teachers they're empty And now, if you can imagine, right there in the the temple, the crowd is gathered, the disciples are gathered, the Pharisees are gathered, the religious leaders are gathered around. Now Jesus turns his attention from the disciples and the crowd gathered around him. And with those penetrating eyes, 
that Christ must have had, he looks directly into the eyes of the religious leaders gathered there. And he begins to denunciate their practices. He condemns their false spiritual leadership within Israel. I mean, they held tremendous power and influence. And they were using it in a way that was not honoring to the Lord. And we see here in verses 13 to 33, Jesus pronounces seven curses or seven woes, you might say, on these wicked leaders of Israel. Now, some of you may say, well, there's eight there because when you read the text, somehow you skipped over verse 14. Well, I want to tell you, in most of the most trusted manuscripts, verse 14 in Matthew chapter 23 is not there. So we're not going to deal with that. It's taken out of Mark 12.40 and Luke 20.47. And scholars believe that it must have been added by a copyist from one of the other Gospels to into the Gospel of Matthew. But the, the, the best text that we have don't, doesn't have verse 14 in there. I'm reading from the ESV. There's not a verse 14. So we're not going to go over that. But this statement is genuine. And it's found in the other Gospels. Now remember the scene is in, in this temple. All He just confronted them. He, he previously kicked out all the money changers and all the money-making schemes that they had there. And as Jesus' anger was vented out there, what they were doing outwardly with his father's temple, with his father's house, Now he turns his attention and he attacks what's on their inside. And that made him even all the more angry. Uh, This kind of confrontation, I mean, just reading it and seeing some of the names he uses to address these religious leaders. These are not people who are down and outers. These are not people who are, you know, the homeless and, you know, the, the, the people that, that don't, don't have a, a career or anything like that. No, these are the religious leaders. These are the top of their society. And Jesus turns his attention to him, and he begins to pronounce one curse, one woe after another. And it's because of the false leadership and the false spirituality that they were portraying to the people. We see that today. But if you were to confront people today, even false leaders, sometimes I'll mention a name, a false teacher, somebody I see on TV or something, and inevitably somebody comes up after the service and mentions something to me about it. Well, do you think it's good to name somebody's name? Well, if they're a false teacher, they're a false teacher. If they're teaching things that are not in accordance with the Word of God, I think we need to let people know about it. Now, if Jesus would have done this today within the church, people would have been aghast. They would have thought, what in the world is he doing? What kind of confrontation is this? How are people going to see the love of Jesus in this? In the day and age we live in, it's a tolerant society. I mean, everybody has their little 
thing that they're saying and everybody's okay with it. And yet, Jesus here in this text, rather than hold back, he speaks out rather boldly against all that is ungodly and unbiblical and and unspiritual in the lives of the people. Now, he indicts them here. He also indicts them in other areas as well. There's actually some scholars that when they read this text, they believe that somebody wrote this and Jesus actually didn't say these things. They say there's no way Jesus would ever say this. He wouldn't call people blind men. He wouldn't say this and that to these, you know, insult these religious leaders that way. He would never do it. So there's a group of very liberal theologians that believe that somebody else wrote this and put it in the text. But Jesus never would say anything like this because Jesus is a God of love. Well, he is that, but he's also a God of justice and a God of truth. And beloved, if you don't have the truth, what do you have? If you're not learning the truth from the Word of God, what are you learning? You know, in our society, we, everybody's got a piece of the truth. Truth is kind of relative. Well, that's a far cry from the truth. And so Jesus confronts the religious leaders here. And when he, you see here these, these words that he uses, he calls them sons of hell, blind guides, fools, robbers, self-indulgent, whitewashed tombs, full of hypocrisy, lawless, serpents, vipers, persecutors, murderers of God's people. And yet, when you read it, you think, man, he must have just been going on an outrage. But I don't think that was the case. I think Jesus was perfectly in control of what he was saying. And he said every word with meaning. And every condemnation that he uttered was there for a purpose because it was true and they needed to hear it. He wasn't angry. He wasn't frowning about and perspiring at this point and his veins weren't popping out in his head and he's yelling at these guys. That's not what was happening. I think he was very calmly pronouncing these things to these folks. And I think as they heard it, his intention was that their hearts would be touched. That their hearts would be wooed to the the Savior. He was never cold or indifferent, even toward his enemies. He knew that he needed to communicate to them the predicament that they were in. The lostness of their situation. And he did so with compassion, not with anger. It's not the Son's will that any, any more than it is the Father's will that a single person should perish. That a single person should enter an eternity away from God in hell forever. That is not God's desire. It's his gracious desire that everyone would come to repentance, 2 Timothy 3.9 tells us, and to salvation. That's his desire. So Jesus here isn't pronouncing a 
kind of a damnation on these people. He's literally showing them the predicament that they find themselves in. Remember when he came into Jerusalem and he, during his triumphal entry, as he approached, it says in Luke that he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said this, if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus was filled with compassion for these people. And he uses two words over and over and over again. Woe and hypocrites. Woe is a word that's kind of it's an onomatopoeic word. Kind of like when you grunt or something. It's not really a word. That's kind of what that means. Whoosh, your kids go, you know, it's not really a word. That's kind of what this means. It, it, it has the idea of a guttural outcry of pain or anger or even both. It's used in the Old Testament to express grief and despair, sorrow, dissatisfaction, pain, or the fear of losing one's life. In the New Testament, it's, it's used to speak of sorrow and of judgment carrying the ideas of punishment and pity kind of mingled together there. See, but Jesus' woes here, his judgments against the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not an exclamation, but they're really a declaration. It's a divine pronouncement of judgment from God upon them. He was not wishing for these... False leaders to be damned to hell. That's not what he was saying, but he's certifying it. He's saying, because of your actions, here's here's the result. Here's what's going to happen. He knew that if they didn't repent, and if they didn't believe in a loving Savior, they were doomed to hell under God's righteous and just wrath. Now, can you imagine being a religious person dressed up in all your robes and hearing These things from this guy from Nazareth, of all places. Second word he uses is hypocrites. And we know that word. We've used it before in the the Gospel of Matthew. It has the idea of actors, one answering back and forth as they act in a dialogue kind of a thing, putting on a false front. Kind of a theatrical goodness that's pretended, it's not real. And he uses those two words over and over and over again in this text. He's trying to get a point across, you think? So let's look at the denunciation of these Pharisees. And I think that you can look at these in a variety of ways, and a lot of people do that. But I really see a parallel between the text here in Matthew 23 and the text over in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. It almost follows point by point. Even verse uh, 14 has a point over in Matthew 5. We're going to cover that this morning. But here, I think, is the best way to deal with these seven woes, to figure out what exactly is he saying. In contrast that with the, the Beatitudes over in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. So let's do that. Let's look at the first one. In verse 13 there, he says... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. He's talking about shutting up the kingdom. Over in in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, he talks about entering the kingdom. Remember when we went through that? Who enters the kingdom? The poor in spirit, right? Those who are poor in spirit. But those who are proud in spirit keep themselves out and they even keep others out who follow them. The original word there indicates people trying to get in who can't. They're trying to get in somewhere. Have you ever been somewhere and you want to get in but you can't? Frustrating. But it's bad enough to keep yourself out of the kingdom. I mean, if if that's what you're going to do for yourself. But it's even worse when you stand in the way of others who are trying to go in the kingdom. And you're not even just standing in their way. You're actually pushing them through another door that leads somewhere else. That's what he's saying here. By teaching man-made traditions instead of God's truth, that's what they were doing, they took away the key of knowledge and closed the door to salvation. Not only for themselves, but for all who followed them. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across the sea and land and make, to make a single proselyte, a single convert. And when he becomes a convert, a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What's this say? This says that they're pretty proud about their following. They're pretty proud when they get a convert. Matter of fact, they're so proud they're willing to travel all the way across sea and land to make even a single convert. Just so that they could parade the person around and say, hey, look at, what, look at who's following me now. Look at this person. You sense the pride there? Pride sends souls to hell. But in Matthew 5, 5, it says, who will inherit the earth? Not the proud, but who? The meek. Just the opposite. These converts were converts to a false cause. The Pharisees were out there just to win, in their legalistic system, others to that system. But they couldn't introduce these people to a living God. You know, there's some religions around today that are that way. I mean, they look real good and everything, but when you get right down to the the, the nuts and the bolts of the matter, it's a bunch of legalism. And there's no truth there. There's no truth that will convert their soul. And yet, people join organizations and join groups like that all the time because they feel good about themselves. Look at what I'm doing. Look at, look at all the things I do. All the things I'm committed to. He uses that word child of hell. It's, it's an equivalent to Jesus saying you're a child of the devil, which he called the Pharisees that before. Child of the devil child of hell is basically a person who has rejected. They've turned their back on. They said, I'm not interested in the offer. I'm not interested in the way of salvation that God has, which is righteousness through faith in Christ. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in my own righteousness. And I feel pretty good about myself. That person kind of parades his own self-righteousness through whatever religious system they belong to. 
And what's funny is when you look at those systems of religion and those organizations, a lot of times the followers are even more zealous than the leaders. The convert usually shows more zeal than the leader. And that's why he says they're almost a double devotion, kind of doubling down on the thing. How tragic that people can think that they're going to heaven by some religious practice or program or something they do or something they don't do when they're actually going to hell. What a horrible state to be in. And he says, you know what? You make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Next, we see a hungering for holiness over in Matthew 5, 6. But here you see kind of a a greed that sets in in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple... It is nothing. What's he talking about? Well, when they would swear by something back then, there's kind of like a handshake, kind of like giving your word. And basically what the religious leaders taught, that, you know, if you do it from the temple, you know, based on the temple, it's no big deal. But look at what it says. You believe it's nothing if you swear by the temple, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound to his oath. In other words, you take the gold out of the temple and you swear on that, well, that means something. But the temple, big deal. It says in verse 17, you blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? It kind of speaks... To their real desires here. They were getting their priorities confused, the religious leaders were. He calls them blind guides. It's a perfect description of them. He's used it before of them. But they were blind to God's values, to God's true values of life. Their priorities in life were obviously confused. I mean, they would take an oath and they'd use some sacred object to substantiate that oath. Maybe the gold of the temple, for example. Or it goes on, it talks about a gift on the altar. But they would not swear by the temple itself, or the altar itself, just by the gift. It was the temple, Jesus says, that sanctifies the gold, and the altar that sanctifies the gift. And they were really leaving God out of the priorities I mean, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they wanted that gold and the gifts on the altar. And the reason he knew that is, remember when we were going through Matthew 15, we talked about a thing called korban. And basically what the Pharisees would do is they would practice this. They would take a portion of their income or a portion of their wealth or whatever it is, and they'd say, okay, this is called korban. And what that means is that's dedicated to God. And so since that's dedicated to God, 
If the neighbor across the street comes across to my house and says, hey, do you have any food that I could eat? Oh, sorry, I've already dedicated that to Corbin. That's to God. I mean, I know you're seeing food, but it's, it's dedicated to God. Sorry. And they would do this religiously just to take advantage of the situation so they wouldn't have to give things away and they would hold on to things. See, these men were not seeking the righteousness of God. They were greedy for gain in their hearts. And when you look at false teachers out there in the world today, the one thing you'll see that's common among everyone is an emphasis on the almighty dollar. Two of one. They're interested in using religion to pocket, to line the pockets of their expensive trousers. And they do it all the time without, without apology. I mean, NBC, ABC, all these you know, news, 60 Minutes, everything have exposed these people over and over and over and over again, and yet they continue to do what they do. And they find people to follow them. Well, look at verse 23 to 24. See, he's looking for people that are hungering for holiness. That's what he says over in Matthew 5. But here, he's, in verse 23, he's talking about people who reject mercy. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. In other words, you have to understand what he's talking about here. These, these little mint and dill and cumin... Okay, these weren't things that God would reject as a tithe. If people wanted to tithe them, that was fine. But they weren't things like you grew in the garden by bulk. These were things that you would grow, you know, outside on the thing to, to mix with some meals now and then. They're little herbs. Very small amount. And you can just see these Pharisees counting out these seeds. Oh, look at what I'm tithing. That's the idea here. And they were minoring majoring on the minors. And he says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you all have ought to done without neglecting the others. In other words, it's okay to tithe this mint and dill and cumin thing, but you should do the others too. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They had rules, the Pharisees did, for every minute area of life. Everything. While at the same time, they forgot about the important things. That's usually the case when you come to someone who is a legalist. They're, they're, they're sticklers for the details, but they're blind to the greater principles at hand. I mean, this crowd thought nothing of condemning an innocent man, yet they were afraid to enter Pilate's judgment hall. Yes, they'd be, unless they're defiled. I mean, did you see the, the contrast here? They would condemn Jesus to death, 
in exchange for Barabbas. But boy, they, they couldn't do certain things because it would defile them. The principles of Christian giving under grace are given in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But it says that we give from our hearts. We don't give out of legalism. And he says, you know what? You strained out the net and swallowed a camel. See, when they would drink wine back then, they would have their wine sitting out and little bugs would tend to float on the top and the Pharisees would take the glass and they'd grit their teeth really tight and they'd take a sip of wine so that they would strain out any gnats because a gnat was something that could defile them. Literally, that's what they thought. Unclean. Well, the camel's also unclean. But it's a little bigger than a gnat. <laughs> so he's basically pointing out to them, boy, how silly can you be? You're, you're straining out over this little gnat here, but over here on this case, you're swallowing a whole camel. And you don't even see it. There's a lot of people out there in the world today that really believe in their heart that, hey, you know what? I'm okay. I'm a good person. But the Word of God tells us something different. The Bible tells us clearly that none of us is good. None of us is able to rise to God's level of holiness. The only way we can do that is through the righteousness of Christ. So it's okay to focus on some of these things, but don't lose sense of the spiritual matters at hand. Now look at what he says in verse 25 to 28. And here he kind of combines two. He, he gives one woe and then he gives kind of two, he gives two woes and, and two illustrations, but they're, they're very similar. So we'll just call these five and six. And they speak of defilement in their heart. He says in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside, what? They are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. See, over in Matthew 5, verse 8, it says, that we are to be pure in heart. The, the, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, the Pharisees were interested in basically being pure on the outside. They wanted everybody to, to, to look at them and say, oh, look at how holy they are. Look at how righteous they are. And so he speaks of their selfishness first. I mean, have you ever taken a cup at your house out of the dishwasher and realized after you put something in it, whoa, this isn't clean yet. You ever done that? Kind of gross, right? I mean, even though it's your house and you're the one drinking out of it and you probably knew what was in it, it's still gross. It's dried stuff or whatever. Who knows what's in there, right? You don't just continue to drink it. You put it down, you wash it, and you get a new, go get a new cup. Why? Because the inside of it's dirty. And see, they thought, oh, the outside, that's all that we have to be concerned with. He says, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. But you got crusty food on the inside. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate. 
that the outside also may be clean. You know, I've done a lot of dishes. I like to do dishes. I'll admit it. I don't know what it, what it is about. I don't know if it's the warm water, the soap suds, whatever. But if there's dishes to be done, hey, I'm doing them. I like to do dishes. Not a problem. Usually when I do a dish, I always clean the inside of the cup first and then kind of do the outside. That's just how you do it. It's a very practical way. You wouldn't just clean the outside and then set it over there hoping the inside's clean. But I always start from the inside out. See, and that's the illustration that Jesus is trying to get across to us. Start from the inside out. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. You could be the richest person in the world, have the finest suits, and have your hair all done up and everything. And you, you look stunning from the outside. But your heart, before God, is, is wicked and vile and, and unholy. Or you could be a homeless person on the streets and wretch and smell and stink. Haven't had a bath in days. But you know what? I've met some homeless people on the streets. They know Jesus. And you know what? When you talk to them, the love of Christ just shines through. They're a little hard to stand there for a while because they do stink because they are on the streets. But you know what? They're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And even though they don't look like it on the outside, God says, you know what? You're okay. Because I've changed the inside. That's what he's interested in. And then he uses another illustration here. And he speaks of their contamination. Not just their selfishness, but their contamination. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like the whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. See, the one thing with with Jewish people is, is... Anything unclean, death is unclean. Anything to deal with death is unclean. So they had to be very careful when they were around tombs, anything like that. So they would actually take these tombs and they would whitewash them so they'd look just immaculately clean on the outside. I mean, it's kind of a weird concept. But they would whitewash them so nobody would go by and accidentally touch that tomb and be defiled because that's what they thought would happen. So they would kind of stand out. So you would know if you were a Jew, wow, that's a whitewashed tomb. Stay away from that. You don't want to become defiled. And it was especially done around the Passover time. You had a lot more people, a lot more crowds there. But what a graphic illustration of someone who would be a hypocrite. Look at what it says. For you are whitewashed, like whitewashed tombs on the outside, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of what? Dead man's bones, dead people's bones, and all uncleanness. And he sums it up in verse 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. Notice the word appear. But within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now remember, he's nose to nose with these guys, pronouncing these judgments to these religious leaders. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, blessed are the what? Are the pure in heart. Not just on the outside. What's going on on the inside? Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the issues or the springs of life. See, the Pharisees lived for their 
reputation, you might say, not their character. Your reputation is what people perceive you to be. Your character is who you really are. And they just cared about what people perceived them to be. We'll look at verse 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? When Jesus called a Pharisee a serpent, a generation of serpents, he even called them at one point, uh, he was identifying them with Satan, who was the original serpent, Genesis 3.1. In the parable of the tares, as we went through that in Matthew 13, Jesus made it clear that Satan has a family. (laughs) Satan is a murderer, he's a liar, and his children follow that example. See, the Pharisees were liars and they were murderers. That's what he's explaining to them. It was their fathers who killed the martyrs. Not their biological fathers, obviously, but their spiritual fathers. And see, here's what what is is happening right before their eyes. Jesus is unmasking them. He goes on there and he explains to them in verse 34, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Paul, the disciples, others, So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the innocence of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What's the result of this line of murdering actions that they've taken Pardon. It says, basically, they will taste the wrath of God. Some of that judgment may have been fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., but I think some of it is still to be fulfilled. See, we can't take the truth of God and, and make it something that it's not. Jesus clearly says, you know what, I'm more concerned about what's going on on the inside than what's just on the outside. You may look all fancy-dancy with your nice little robes and your cross hanging around your neck, all that stuff, whatever they had on there. (laughs) Sure, it wasn't a cross, but whatever they wore. Their phylacteries and all that. 
But Jesus says that doesn't matter. What's on the inside, that's what counts. Jesus measures spirituality in terms of character. The the Pharisees measured it by religious activities, conforming to external laws. He taught a life based on principles. The Pharisees majored on rules and regulations. They, he emphasized the inner man. They emphasized the outer man. Jesus taught a life of humility and sacrificial service, but the Pharisees were proud, and basically they would use people for, to accomplish whatever they wanted to do. That was their role. And when Jesus was confronting them, his holy life exposed all the artificial piety and their shallow religiosity, everything. It was just exposed. And what broke the heart of Christ was instead of coming out of that, they saw the contrast. They could see the miracles he did. They knew, they knew who he was. Instead of coming out of that darkness, the Pharisees tried to put the light out. <laughs> they failed. But the compassion of Christ, he wanted them to come out of that darkness. Just like he wants you today, here today, come out of that darkness. Come out of your way, your, your, your life. Give it up. Just give it over to Christ. That's what he wants. And I'll be the first to tell you, you can't do it by yourself. You can't do it. I mean, heaven or hell, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure that one out, Right? Let's see, where do I want to go? Heaven or hell? Heaven, you know, everlasting bliss with the, with the Lord and, and just all the greatness that is spoken of in the Word, or hell, total vacuum of God, black darkness, gnashing of teeth, burning of the flesh, but you never really burn up. I mean, that alone should give you the eebie-jeebies. Just, you know, have you ever been burned? Have you ever gotten yourself burned? You know how much that hurts? Can you imagine that pain for eternity, never going away, never dying, never coming to a point where it's, wow, it's, it's just so much, it's just growing numb. No, it's just intense. That's what awaits those who end up in a Christless eternity in hell. This isn't a joke. This is a reality. And Jesus was saying these things to them, not to put them down. He wasn't calling them names. Brood of vipers. That's not what Jesus was doing. He was saying, he was calling them exactly what they were. And the Bible does that. It calls us exactly what we are. We're sinners in need of God's grace. I pray that your hearts would be turned to the Savior. And we see quickly in closing the lamentation over Jerusalem. He really spoke this as a sincere expression of his love for Jerusalem. Jerusalem speaks basically the entire nation of Israel. You know, if there's one thing that people have an issue with today, it's, issue. it's, it's, it's Israel on a whole. Just bring it up in a political conversation. You'll either get people pro-Israel or anti. I mean, it's just, it's just a dividing line. And you got this little strip of land over there. 
I mean, it's crazy when you stop and think about it. But he, Christ, had grief in his heart over the many opportunities for salvation that had passed them by. It just passed them by. Remember, this is Wednesday, Friday, he's out of here. He's been ministering to these people for three plus years. He's been trying everything to to woo their hearts, to show them the error of their way, to show them that he is the Son of God. He did miracle after miracle. He showed his omniscience. He knew what was in their hearts before they even spoke it. Yet their hearts were so hard. And he speaks this lament concerning them. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. Once again, speaking the truth, telling it like it is. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And what's it say? You would not. You would not. By His grace, Jesus came to gather His people, to save them. That's why He came. He didn't come just so we'd have a holiday called Christmas. And when He says there, I would have done this, but you would not, it really summarizes the, the tragedy of the final injection of truth. This is Jesus reaching out to them one last time. See, there's no argument here about divine sovereignty or human responsibility. Both are included here. God could not force people to be saved. Neither could He change the consequences of their stubborn rejection. John 5.40 says, You will not come to Me that you may have life. You will not come to Me that you may have life. The image of this mother bird gathering and covering her little birds with her wings is a familiar one. Moses used it in the Old Testament. It's a picture of love, tender care, a willingness to die and even protect them. That's what Christ was explaining to them. He says, see your house is left to you desolate. Probably means both the city and the temple. It was desolate after it was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman armies. In Matthew 24, it says, the next chapter, the very first verses, Basically, it tells us that Jesus left both the temple and he left Jerusalem. And he went out. He left them. And he went out into the Mount of Olives. Yet, he left them with this promise. Look at the promise at the end. It comes out of uh, Psalm 118. Jesus left Israel as a nation with this promise that one day he would return and the nation would see him He says, you will see me again, 
And until you say, then look at what it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The very words that the crowds were using on Palm Monday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem the first time, that's exactly what they were saying to him. Well, when would that be fulfilled? It would be fulfilled at the end of the age when Jesus returns to earth to deliver Israel and defeat the enemies, Zechariah, Romans tells us. See, even the fact that Israel rejected their king, Jesus Christ, they rejected him. It still doesn't hinder the great plan of God's redemption. Instead of establishing his glorious kingdom on earth, Jesus would build his church. That's exactly what he did. And when that work is finished, the Bible tells us that he will return and he will take his church to heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4. Then there'll be a time of judgment on earth, the day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble, the Bible tells us, at the end of which he will return and he will deliver Israel. You know, you cannot read this set of denunciations here without marveling at the, at the patience and the goodness of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have had this much patience. I mean, there would have been one woe and it's over. That's just, you know, I don't know. Three and a half years, he's reached out, he's reached out, and they just bit one finger off the other, after the other. And yet he continued to extend his hand. And then you stop and you think of this. No nation really has been blessed like the nation Israel. On a whole, if you look at the world in general, no nation has been blessed just in the wars that they've come through by God as the nation Israel. And yet, on the other hand, no nation has sinned against God's goodness as Israel has. I mean, they had it all. They have been a channel of God's blessing to the world because the Bible says in John 4.27 that salvation is of the what? Of the Jews. Yet, they have suffered greatly in this world. Jesus was born a Jew. He loved his nation Those of us who are Gentiles ought to thank God for the Jewish nation. Thank God for the Jewish people. They gave us the witness of the one true God. They gave us the Bible. They gave us Jesus Christ, our Savior. Like Jesus, we ought to love the Jews. Seek to win them to Christ. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And encourage them every way we can. But it has to start right here. It has to start in our own hearts, beloved. I want to ask you this morning, where is your heart? Where have you put Christ? Where is He? Is He on the shelf? You kind of poking and prodding Him? Are you for real? What's going on over there? I want to tell you here today, just standing before you, the relationship 
that you can have with Jesus Christ is a real relationship. It's not some, you know, pie in the sky. It's a real relationship. It's a dynamic relationship. You can go around this room and you can ask person after person after person and they'll tell you, yeah, it's real. My salvation is real. There was a day when God intervened in my life and saved me from my sinfulness. Has it been a bowl of cherries ever since? No. Never is. Life is filled with trials, filled with tribulations, one after the other. But you know what? The one thing that I know for sure, without a doubt, doesn't matter what happens. I know my salvation is real because I know my Savior is real. And I just beg of you, give it a try. Reach out to him. He's there for you today. Father, we pray this morning, Lord, as we read those words in Matthew 23. It's a hard thing really to stomach to imagine being a religious person coming under the hearing of those words that were spoken with compassion yet authority. With love and tenderness yet boldness. Those words that Christ spoke to these religious leaders were not meant to push them down. They were meant to lift them up, to save them. The first step in salvation is realizing that you need to be saved. That's the first step. I pray today that for us gathered here, Many many of us already know you. I pray that we would transfer this passion of our Lord to the lost and the dying world when we leave this building today. To the people that we come across daily who have yet to put their faith or trust in a very real and living Savior. I pray that we would not grow weary in giving out the gospel, modeling the gospel, living the gospel in front of a lost and dying world. And I pray for those gathered here today who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. Today could be the day. Doesn't have to be a big showy thing. It's just you and God. You come to God with a humble heart. I know He's blessed you in your lives. You're here today as a result of it. You're hearing the truth of the Word of God. That's God reaching out to you. That feeling that you have on the inside, uneasiness, that's God calling you. That's God convicting you. I pray that you would yield to it. You would ask God for His mercy, His grace, and His forgiveness. When you do, from a humble heart, He will answer that prayer. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I don't know if this is real or not, but Lord, I know I need your mercy. Show me. Be real to me. He'll answer that prayer. He'll change you from the inside out. Father, we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.